morning, welcome again. Uh, we continue through the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. If you have one with you, please turn there to the very end of the Bible. We're at Revelation chapter 3. We are continuing through these seven messages or seven letters that Jesus sends to seven churches uh, in a circle around the western side of what's today Turkey. Uh, maybe start feeling a little redundant, these kinds of things that Jesus is saying to these churches and what he wants from them. Um, and I know we're all really excited to get to the really crazy psychedelic stuff later on in the book. But we have to remember that these letters are here for a reason, that this whole entire wild book is here to encourage churches like these ones in their sin and in their suffering. Uh, this is the whole frame of the book. All that wild stuff in most of the book is there to encourage and to help churches like these and churches like ours. So don't get too bored too soon. Revelation chapter 3. I'm going to read two of the letters. This is Jesus speaking. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you'll not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, bless the reading and now the preaching of your word so that we all might hear it clearly and apply it boldly to our hearts and our minds and our relationships and to our church. Help us, we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen. So we continue with um, more of these messages of Jesus to these seven churches. Uh, we're doing two of them today. The first one that I read is to a church in a city called Sardis. Sardis had once been the capital of a kingdom 
ruled by a man named Croesus. Croesus, you may have heard of him before. He was famous for inventing the first gold coins uh, in the world, as far as we know. Uh, And because of that, and with that, Croesus was also fantastically wealthy and was famous all over uh, the ancient Greek world because of that. At the time that Croesus was the king of Sardis, uh, the city's central fortress was also famous. He was famous for being fantastically wealthy. The fortress in the middle of Sardis was famous for being fantastically secure. Uh, It was perched on top of a huge rock. There was only one way to get up on top of that rock, and they had fortified that one ramp of access very heavily and thoroughly. Everything else was huge, sheer cliff. Uh, It was widely known, Herodotus tells us, as the strongest place in the world. But in 550 BC, this is at the time of King Croesus, in 550 BC, the Persian King Cyrus, uh, who if you know your Old Testament, you'll recognize that name. He's an important character in the Old Testament. Uh, King Cyrus of Persia placed Croesus's impregnable city under siege for two weeks. The soldiers and the residents of Sardis were confident that there was no way for them to fall because they had so strongly built up their defenses. Uh, But one night a brave Persian soldier figured out that he could scale one of these cliffs and he showed his comrades that it was possible to get up and into the supposedly impregnable city. And so after two weeks, the city quickly fell. Patting themselves on the back for their history and for their skill, King Croesus and his city had no idea how much danger they were really in. 500 years later, in the first century AD, these two churches in front of us are also in great danger. Like Sardis the city, 500 years earlier, Sardis the church is dangerously unaware of its vulnerability. They wrongly think that they are cruising to victory. But unlike Sardis, the church in Philadelphia is painfully aware of its vulnerability. They wrongly think that they're doomed to defeat. And so to the first church, Jesus gives a somber warning. And to the second church, Jesus gives loving comfort. He offers the same warning and the same comfort to us today, whether we need to hear them as individual Christians or as a church. So let's look at Sardis first, this church in Sardis. That's in verses 1 to 6. Now again, this is the first church, the church that is smugly unaware of its great danger. Jesus identifies himself in verse 1 as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And once again, as he's done in each of these messages, he starts out with some reference to the vision that John had of Jesus in chapter 1. There in chapter 1, we had heard that Jesus held the seven stars in his right hand, which we said was a way of showing that Jesus was protecting and watching over these seven churches as a representation of the fullness of of his whole church, because in the Bible, the number seven linked to the six days of creation and the seventh day of rest, uh, they stand for completion or perfection or wholeness. The seven spirits, as we'll see in chapters four and five, uh, is a way of describing God's one Holy Spirit in terms of his fullness and his perfection. So as Jesus is turning to warn a church that is dangerously naive He reminds them that he's the one who's present in his churches by the power of his Holy Spirit, that he's present among his churches. He's with them to keep watch over them 
not only in their victories, but also in their vices. But now Jesus gives a diagnosis of what's wrong with this church. He says, you have the reputation, literally the name of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. So this is a a church that looks and is known to be vibrant and active. This church is great and growing. Uh, You probably could imagine if this was a church today, it would be really busy with all kinds of programs. It would be brimming with attendance and cash flow. It's well regarded by people outside of the church. There's editorials about it in the local papers saying, look at this church, look how great they are, look at everything they're doing for our city. Uh, If this church... Uh, was factored into a a book by some church guru about church growth, Uh, they would be pointing to it as a case study and saying, wow, look at these spectacular results. Look at the resume of this church. This church is alive. They think they're alive, but Jesus says, you're dead. They think they are productive, but Jesus says, you're asleep. Uh, They are like a really big tree that once grew near my vegetable garden, Uh, The tree was decades old. It had lots of beautiful green foliage, big shady branches, flowers in the spring. Uh, And then one calm day, I walked down to my garden and I was shocked to see that the whole thing had just fallen over, snapped at the trunk without even a gentle breeze to do it in. It turned out it was rotten on the inside. Nobody knew. Like many churches today, like many churches since the first century, a ministry can appear to be vivacious but can actually be dead. It's kind of like what we heard in Jesus' message to the church in Ephesus. We need to be careful as a church that we never go on cruise control, whether we do that as individuals, as families, but especially as a local church. We can't rely on programs and numbers and dollars and charisma and history. Of course, the scary thing here is that this church has no idea that they're dead. In a sense, being dead feels like being alive. And so just like we need the Spirit of God to make us alive, we need the Spirit of God to keep us alive. How does that happen? What does it look like when a church is truly alive, when a church is truly awake? Look at verses 3 and following. Jesus says to them, and he says to us, insofar as we need to hear it, remember what you've received and heard. Keep it. And repent. This is how we quote, Jesus says, wake up and strengthen what remains. Jesus does not have some cutting edge program for this church to move on to. Just like a baseball team doing drills in spring training, Jesus calls the church back to the basics. He says, remember the message you first received and heard when you became Christians and when your church started. The basic but wonderful good news that because of God's amazing love and grace towards an undeserving world, he's come to dwell among us in Jesus. And that Jesus has died for our sins and rose again from the dead to redeem us and to rescue us and our world and from all the effects of sin upon us and upon it. That's the gospel. That's the good news. The Christian And the church never graduates beyond this good news about Jesus. 
The key to vitality in the Christian life and in Christian ministry is to keep this first thing first. It's something that we as a church must always be asking ourselves and something that you should always be asking yourself if you are a Christian today. Is the gospel still first? Have I grown cold to God's love? Have I forgotten what God has given me in Christ? Have I wandered off the pilgrim path to heaven and become distracted with all these little trinkets in this fallen world? Jesus says we have to keep, we have to hold on to, we have to guard this good news. We have to preserve it and hold on to it no matter what's happening to us or around us. The history of the church, Austin, the city, is full of churches who have taken the gospel for granted who stop caring about it and move on to other things and in the end die and become ineffective. To whatever extent we have lost sight of the gospel in our hearts and in our lives, Jesus says we have to repent. We have to see this sin and this failure for what it is. We have to learn to hate our forgetfulness toward Jesus. And from all of that, turn towards God's grace in Jesus for forgetful and sleepy sinners, for forgetful and sleepy churches. God loves sinners. We need to remember that and repent of our sin. This is how we wake up. This is how we come to life, even when it seems like we don't have a pulse anymore. If Sardis, or if we don't wake up, then Jesus threatens to come like a thief in the night. He says to this church that unless you stop playing games, unless you stop pretending to be alive, I am going to come in the middle of the night and throw a patio chair through your door and bust in and start wrecking things. It is not going to be pretty. It's a threat of judgment against his own church. He loves his creation so much that Jesus cannot and will not allow Christians and churches to pretend to represent him if they are not actually going to draw life and vitality from him. But even so, not all hope is lost for this church. Jesus says that there are still a handful of people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, who haven't gotten their clothes dirty. They are those who, unlike everybody else in their church, have stayed strong, holding on to the fundamental grace of the living Jesus. Jesus says that this handful of people in the church will walk with me in white. And then he promises anybody who conquers, who comes back around to be like them, he says, anybody like them is going to be clothed in white garments. And so in spite of the church's many failures, the first thing that Jesus promises them, uh, if they return to him, is purity. White clothing is an image of moral innocence, moral purity before God. Uh, God first declares us to be innocent through his forgiveness of our sins and his giving to us of Jesus' righteousness. But then on the basis of that, and with that being the power for us, he also empowers us to live more and more purely for for him. He declares us to be innocent. He declares us to be pure in his sight. And then he empowers us by his grace to live more purely. It's all by and through the work of Christ on our behalf, especially his death on the cross. 
Later, the book of Revelation will tell us that paradoxically, God's people are those who wash their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. Our clothes become white when we go to Jesus' blood. The second thing that Jesus promises is security. You can see that in verse 5. He says, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. You see, it's an assurance that all those whom God saves will be saved, will stay saved. That for all those who trust in Christ, there is no sin and no suffering. There's no failure and no foe who will ever be able to remove you from God's great heavenly guest list, which the book of Revelation will later tell us is a list written before the foundation of the world. Even before God made anything, he already had made his guest list, the book of life. If you trust in Christ today, your name is on it. So God's predestination, that's what we call this theologically, we call it predestination. It's not something that people uh, should be anxious about. Uh, Not something that should scare us, like it kind of did me when I first started learning about it. But you can see here that predestination is actually a source of great comfort. It's a source of great confidence. That's how Jesus intends it here. Especially like these churches when we're facing so much sin and suffering. The last thing that Jesus promises here is welcome. Verse 5. He says, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. It's a wonderful, happy image for anyone who has learned to remember the grace of God that we received and heard, Jesus says, one day, I will point to you in the presence of Almighty God Himself, in the presence of the fearsome angels. Anytime people in the Bible see an angel, they fall down in terror. Jesus says, I will point to you one day in the presence of the Father and in the presence of those angels, and I will say, yes, Father, He is one of us. She belongs to us. Fill in your name there. Bob, he's one of ours. Teresa, she's one of ours. They belong. They're ours. Jesus says, I will confess your name. I will say, I'm happy to have you with me. So Jesus' warning to a sleepy, dying church comes with a kind of comforting encouragement, even though it's also quite sobering. So let's look at the second church now. Now, Sardis is a church that is smugly unaware of its danger. Philadelphia is a church that is painfully aware of its great danger. Uh, Don't get confused. Don't think Ben Franklin or Rocky. This is the first Philadelphia, the ancient one. This is one of only two churches for whom Jesus has nothing negative to say. Like the other church, uh, Smyrna, we heard about that a couple weeks ago. This church is suffering severely for their faith in Christ. Jesus starts by describing himself as the Holy One, the True, uh, which is a way of identifying himself as God. This is language from the book of Isaiah, uh, when God is describing himself as the one who rules over all the suffering of his people as they go away into exile and suffer there for many years. But then Jesus describes himself in terms of a human figure from another place in the book of Isaiah. Uh, there's this little bit in Isaiah 22 where God says he's going to replace a very bad and corrupt steward over the king's palace uh, with a very good steward. 
uh, and the language that Jesus here talks about the, the key of David comes from that chapter in Isaiah. Jesus is saying that I am the new and the better steward. I'm the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. It's a way of saying that Jesus is in charge of God's household. That Jesus is the one who decides who gets welcomed in and who gets shut out. Jesus has the ultimate door lock. He shuts and no one opens. But Jesus also has the ultimate door stop. He opens and no one shuts. He says in verse 8 that he has set before this church an open door, which no one is able to shut. Taken all together, it's a way of encouraging this battered church that Jesus is God himself watching over his pilgrim people as the Holy One while also being God's human Davidic representative, keeping all of his and his church's enemies out of God's kingdom, but also ensuring that his people will always have full and open access to God's kingdom with all the happiness, all the peace that that entails. Trust in Jesus, and God will never close the door on you. It's always open. You can always come in. Unlike with Sardis, the problem here is not sin, but suffering. It says in verse 8 that he knows how painfully they're struggling. What an encouragement that must have been for this church to hear. Jesus says, I know that you have but little power. Unlike the church in Sardis, which looked and felt mighty, this poor church looks and feels weak. They aren't sure if they can make it anymore. But Jesus says, I know. I know how discouraged you are. He also knows the source of their suffering. In verse 9, Jesus calls out their enemies, the local Jews, who are insisting that they are the true people of God and that they're bringing accusations against the Roman authorities that these Christians are dangerous, need to be dealt with. And like in his message to Smyrna, Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan. He says that they're lying when they insist that they are the true people of God. Because you see, the true people of God are centered on God's Messiah, on Jesus himself. And so Jesus encourages these Philadelphian Christians that you really do belong to God. Even if your suffering and your rejection by everybody around you might cause you to think otherwise. Jesus says, I know your works. Which usually in these letters is something ominous for Jesus to say. It's not a good thing. But here, it's meant to be encouraging. Jesus knows how they've kept his word, how they... They've refused to deny his name with their words and with their actions. They haven't compromised like we talked about last week. In verse 10, he affirms them in this patient endurance through persecution and loss. He said many similar things to that very similar church, Smyrna, the only other church that didn't hear anything negative from Jesus, the other church that was suffering lots of persecution, especially instigated by local Jews and the local synagogues. But you might remember that with regard to Smyrna, Jesus told them, get ready for more suffering. It's going to get worse. But with this church, in verse 11, he only has one thing to say to them. He says, just hold on. Just hold on. Keep clinging to me and to my word. It's not going to last much longer. And then Jesus shifts to this whole wonderful bundle of encouraging promises for this very discouraged church. 
Well, first, he says, because you have kept my word, I'm going to keep you. I'm going to keep you from this hour of trial, Jesus calls it, coming on the whole world. He says that he's coming soon to bring this judgment on the world, but also to preserve this church through it. Now, sometimes you can see it here. Here's an example. Sometimes in the book of Revelation, sometimes in the New Testament, Jesus talks about coming or returning, not as the final coming or the final return, but as a way to describe him coming in the world's history as a foreshadow of his judgment and his coming and his return at the end of history. So it's probably a reference to some kind of cataclysmic suffering that's going to happen in the Roman Empire. Uh, Perhaps it was the total chaos that happened in the couple of years leading up to Rome's destruction of Jerusalem and its temple. Uh, That wasn't just a big problem for Jerusalem. The whole entire Roman Empire was about to fall apart in those couple of years leading up to it. Uh, It says here that Jesus is bringing this on the whole world. Uh, Sometimes this phrase in the New Testament doesn't mean like the whole entire planet or every single person. It means the Roman Empire or the civilized world. Uh, This is the phrase that gets used when Caesar Augustus wants to tax the whole world, uh, meaning the Roman Empire, and that's why Jesus has to go to be born in Bethlehem. Uh, It's the phrase that Paul uses when he talks about his own ministry, having the gospel go to the whole world. Paul didn't go to the Aztecs or the Mayans or anybody like that. He's talking about the Roman Empire. And so whatever it is, whether it's this chaos that led up to the destruction of Jerusalem or it's something else happening in the Roman Empire, whatever it is, the point is that Jesus is mighty to protect and to preserve his battered churches, just like he's done many times since and just like he is doing now, just like he can do now in places all over the world, in Nigeria, in Egypt, in Saudi Arabia, in Cuba. Another thing that Jesus promises them in verse 9 is that they're going to see their former opponents coming to trust in Christ along with them. He says that these local Jews who are currently persecuting them are going to come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. This is not describing them cowering, but rather them converting. In the first century, many Jews came to faith in Christ, recognizing that in him... God has brought the Gentiles in from the outside, that God has united the Gentiles, united the nations to Christ, Christ who is Israel, as she was always meant to be. And just like some Jews have done since, and especially with the modern nation of Israel in the news again, we should be praying that Jews will come to trust in Jesus as the Messiah today and in the future. Well, finally, Jesus gives another burst of promises starting in verse 11. He promises that to the one who conquers, again, remember what Jesus means by that. He says, the conqueror, he just told him, just hang on. That's all it is. Just persevere, just endure, just survive. That's conquering. That's encouraging, isn't it? Jesus says, to the one who conquers, no one will take your crown from you. You will always share in my rule over this world. And then he promises that you'll be made a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. It's a way of saying that you will have a stable and a steady position in God's presence. You will never be cast out into the wilderness. And then Jesus promises that he will write the name on his people. The name of my God. The name of the city coming down from heaven. The new Jerusalem. And Jesus' own name. 
Uh, it's perhaps an echo of God's own Trinitarian name, Father, Son, and Spirit, with the Spirit kind of standing in for God's people, the church, the city of God. Uh, it's an encouragement for us to think about our own baptisms. When you're baptized, God is putting his name on you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one name of God now placed upon you forever. It's an encouragement. God's name's on you. Live in light of that. The point uh, with this imagery of putting names on things or seals on things, this will pop up again in Revelation, especially with uh, some of these more famous images about the mark of the beast and 666 and things like that. The point of putting your name on somebody is to mark them out, kind of like branding a cow, that I own this thing. It's a way of saying that God possesses you, that you belong to God. Uh, It's a way of saying that you carry his presence with you, that you enjoy his presence wherever you go in the world as his possession, however dark the world might be. And so you might remember the, the letter to Sardis began with this image of the name that they have, the reputation that they have of being alive but are actually dead. And we end here with Philadelphia about God promising to put his name on his suffering people. And so in conclusion, the question before us is, what kind of name do we have? What kind of name do I have? Like Sardis, do I or do we merely have the reputation of being alive but are actually cold to God and to his love? Fallen asleep on the way, on cruise control. If that's you today, you need to come back. If that's us today as a church, we need to come back to the good news of Jesus. Or instead, do we truly and really and consciously carry about the name of the living God, recognizing that this is the most precious gift we could ever have? Whether we're sleepy today or we're suffering today and discouraged We need to remember that God's given us his name and we need to hold on to it no matter what we're facing. Amen. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is to have the name, the Trinitarian name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit inscribed upon our heads. We are your possession. We carry you about. You carry us about. Help us to live in light of that. Keep us from becoming sleepy as Christians or as a church. Help us, Lord. Some of us maybe for the first time today have heard about this good news of Jesus, what it's all about, your love in him, your presence among us, your redemption of the world through his death and his resurrection. Whether we've heard about it for the first time or this is after we've heard about it many times, Lord, remind us what wonderful good news this is. Help us to return to it over and over and over again. And so may we draw the life of Jesus in the midst of a world of death. We pray in his name. Amen.